You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro. I want to start the program by uh, making a correction that was pointed out to me by a listener in the United States. Uh, the uh, I said that the partition plan was to make a Jewish state and a Palestinian state. But that was a mistake. The partition plan was for a Jewish state and an Arab state, not a Palestinian state. Arabs rejected any Palestinian state under the British mandate. The only Palestinians at that time were uh, Jews. Under the British mandate, the people here who were called Palestinians were Jews. A senior member of the PLO, called Zohar Mohsen, M-O-H-S-E-N, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it, said, and I quote, back in 1947, I think it was, there is no such thing as a separate Palestinian people. There's no difference between Jordanians, Palestinians, or Syrians. The Palestinians' identity exists only for tactical reasons. The creation of a Palestinian state is a new instrument in our ongoing war against the state of the Jewish people, the state of Israel, and for the purpose of Arab unity. So the leaders of the PLO and of the Arab world said at the time there is no such thing as a separate Palestinian people. So I... uh, the uh, as I said in the beginning, the original partition plan was for a state of the uh, Jews and a state of for the Arabs. There's no such thing as a Palestinian people, and I stand corrected. And I want to thank the listener for that correction. It's not just simply a choice of words, but the idea of a Palestinian people per se simply did not exist at that time, and it was only created as an instrument in the war against the Jews. So I want to make that correction. Now, I want to get to the subject that I wish to speak about this week, and it's sort of an odd one. It is something which is really way off the radar, something I hadn't heard of myself, but I wanted to share what I learned with the listeners. There's a people called the Abayudaya, A-B-A-Y-U-D-A-Y. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. Amid the plethora of political and ethical problems that currently confront the state of Israel, it turns out that there is a moral challenge to the concept of Jewish peoplehood that's been overlooked, and that is the plight of the Abayudaya community, which is in the country of Uganda in Africa, and they're seeking recognition as Jews by the state of Israel. In March 2016, the Jewish Agency for Israel officially granted the Abayudaya the status of a recognized Jewish community. After all, that community in Uganda has two Jewish day schools, nine Masorti congregations, 
two additional Orthodox clergymen serving the Orthodox community and another Orthodox congregation that follows the Spanish-Portuguese rite. Now, a letter was written on February of this year by Chief Rabbi Gershon Sizoma uh, and, um, and uh, Kiria Geoffrey, Jeffrey, board chair of the Abayudaya congregation, Rabbi Moshe Madol, leader of the Orthodox community there, and Avra Mukibi, if I hope I'm proud pronouncing this correctly, president of the Zionist movement in Uganda. These people wrote a letter to the Jewish Agency for Israel. These community leaders complained that the Israeli Interior Ministry had walked back that decision to recognize them and now refused to recognize the Abayudaya as a Jewish community. Now, these leaders from that community expressed their desire for closer ties to the world Jewish community and particularly to Israel. They placed special emphasis on their children, stating that they would like their youth to be eligible for birthright and massa programs that bring together Jews from all over the world to Israel. They've been bringing these kids to Israel for quite a while. We often see here in Jerusalem busloads of kids uh, on the side of the bus. Bus it says birthright, and I don't know whether they charge. I think it's a very little charge, but they bring kids here from all over to uh, recognize, to, to get to know Israel, and to uh, strengthen their Jewishness. So these people want to belong to this. They called, they called upon the Jewish agency to work with them for recognition of their community in Uganda as a legitimate Jewish community whose members and youth could participate fully in Zionism and in the Zionist enterprise, just like Jews from other places in the world. So the Jewish agency sent back a letter to them on April stating that the the, the Abayudaya were not a recognized Jewish community on the grounds that the Interior Ministry and the Population and Immigration Authority of the State of Israel refused to extend such recognition. Now, the Jewish agency instead identified the Abayudaya as an emergency emerging Jewish community, whatever that means, emerging Jewish community, and maintain that this definition of the community meant that it could neither advocate for the recognition of them as Jews under the law of return, nor allow Ugandan Jewish youth to participate in programs that they have here. Now, this distinction between an emerging Jewish community and a recognized Jewish community is of significant importance in Israeli Jewish prudence. In past decisions that dealt with the issue of converts, the Israeli High Court of Justice has held that the State of Israel would recognize a conversion uh, um, they would recognize a conversion as legally valid 
only if it took place under the auspices of a rabbinical court that existed in what they called a recognized Jewish community. Only then could they recognize a conversion. The court also observed that the community could be reformed, conservative, or orthodox. Now, persons converted under the, these courts would be considered Jews and granted immediate Israeli citizenship under the law of return and be registered as Jewish in the state population registry. Now, the by choosing to identify this Abayudaya community as simply an urgent emerging community rather than a recognized community, both the ministry and the Jewish agency denied Jewish status to the Abayudaya and what can be charitably called a mean-spirited decision. In other words, they are not going to recognize the Abayudaya as a Jewish community. Now, it is true is that the Abayudaya community only began to embrace Judaism formally in the early 20th century, about 100 years ago. Nevertheless, their commitment to Jewish religious tradition and the concepts of Jewish people have been firm and steadfast for all this time, for over a hundred years. Now, the fact is, they were persecuted as Jews and their synagogues destroyed during the 1970s, but their fidelity to the Jewish people and religion did not waver. Furthermore, the uh, Rabbi Sizoma was ordained at the American Jewish University, and the attendance of uh, a woman named Shoshana Nambi in the rabbinical program of Hebrew Union College indicate that the Abayudaya seek full participation in the world, worldwide community of the Jewish people. So, their allegiance to Jewish tradition and their desire to earn the recognition of their fellow Jews as legitimate members of the Jewish community is evidence in the formal conversion of more than 2,000 Abayudaya persons to Judaism in the last two decades. 1,600 members of the community <coughs> converted to Judaism under the auspices of the conservative rabbinical court, while the Orthodox rabbi, Shlomo Riskin, the rabbi of Ephrat here in Israel, brought an additional 400 members of that community, what he called under the wings of the Shekhinah, of God. Now, given that the high court deemed orthodox and conservative rabbinic courts legally valid for conferring Jewish status upon individuals for the purpose of the law of return, the Jewish agency's insistence that the Bayou Adaya be denied Jewish on the grounds that there is a, there are only an emerging Jewish community is quite uh, honestly 
an outright racist categorization that brings no honor to the state. It is a dismissive and prejudiced stance that the state and the Jewish agency should immediately reverse. Uh, I honestly had never heard of them before, but if I, I know Rabbi Riskin myself, and if he was involved in, uh, in their conversion, it's got to be 100% kosher. Incidentally, back in 1864, Rabbi Israel Hildesheimer, who eventually became the founder of the Berlin Orthodox Rabbiner Seminar, in 1873, issued what he called a circular to the household of Israel, and he defended the Jewishness of the Beth Israel community of Ethiopia at a time when many Jewish leaders sought to cut off these Jews from the world Jewish community. He, Rabbi Hildesheimer, stated that his heart trembled when he considered this fit, for are not all Jews responsible for one another? That's what he said. All Jews are responsible for each other, and if a community is recognized as Jewish, we are responsible for them. So, Hildesheimer, more than 150 years ago, held that it was time to speak and serve the Lord, that was his wording, by welcoming these Jews into the arms of the Jewish people. So the time, I think, has come, and I had never heard of the Abayu Daya before, but uh, if I no, for example, the, of all these rabbis who converted him, I know Rabbi Shlomo Riskin personally, and obviously he's 100% authentic, and you can trust those conversions that he made. So these people, again, are our brothers and sisters, and uh, the, uh, the, the, it's time now for the state of Israel and the Jewish agency to recognize this fact and welcome them back into the fold of the Jewish people. The fact that they're going through all this uh, arbitrary bureaucratic detain, the detention simply doesn't make any sense. And as I said at the beginning, beginning, I myself have never heard of Abayudaya Jews of uh, Uganda, but when I saw the uh, article and I saw that uh, Rabbi Riskin was mentioned, that gave them 100% authenticity in my mind. And I share this information with the listeners. It is not right of the state of Israel and a Jewish agency not to recognize them, them and what they're asking for now at the moment, they're not even talking about Aliyah. They're talking about having their kids involved in the various uh, things that are done to uh, bring youth here, for example, and uh, and uh, like the birthright program. And it certainly seems to me that their request is an authentic one, and I'd like to see the Jewish agency in the state of Israel do something about it. So, again, as I said at the beginning, it's a community I had never heard of, 
and it's now recognized as a Jewish community, and we have to treat them as our brothers and sisters. I want to switch gears now for the remainder of this section of program and talk about something totally different. You know, our prime minister is undergoing a trial, and according to the news, the prosecution said the trial could last five years due to the number of witnesses that would be calling. So it's interesting. Five years and the, the and how much of time of our prime minister who's got a lot of things on his mind is spent in his personal trial trial. The uh, a reporter once asked Barack who uh, Aram Barak, who was the former Supreme Court president, uh, he, uh, he brought up the subject of civil trials, and he asked Barack if he thought it was reasonable that civil trials lasted five years, and uh, the Barack, the uh, Supreme Court, former Supreme Court justice, said five years is reasonable. Now, now, Set aside whether the parties are guilty or innocent, a civil trial between two citizens over a business deal or a dispute between two neighbors that drags on for five or more years is simply not reasonable, nor is a criminal trial expected to last five years, and certainly not an investigation that lasts 12 years. So during that five years, the people involved are required to be summoned to give testimony. They're retaining lawyers and paying other legal fees. And then the accused is not charged due to insufficient evidence. That can happen. So the problem isn't with the early stages of an investigation, because then the investigation is performed quietly by the police and prosecution, Problem is when the investigation goes public and it tarnishes the accused public image and disrupting their lives and that some of the accused are guilty and the whole thing is just a waste of time. And we here we have our prime minister being dragged through this for years. So apparently the reason has to do with the nature of the trial system in Israel. We have what's called a magistrate system, where, as opposed, for example, in England, in most of their, like the United States and other British former colonies, they have what they call a jury trial system. In a magistrate system, the accused is tried before a panel of judges, not before a jury. In Israel, the, the panel may be a single judge or it may be three judges. And for these judges, think about it for a minute, the trial is simply a job. Postponements and delays don't disrupt their private lives, and uh, it doesn't uh, affect their income. For the judges, postponements from one trial simply allow the judge to move on to another trial, which is, uh, and they can keep uh, postponing. For the parties involved with the trial, five or ten years of police summons and postponements and so forth, emotionally and physically exhausting, time-consuming, expensive. And the time spent in court 
and and the inability to know how long it may take and disrupt one's work and one's relationship with their employees and their friends and their family. That a judge thinks five to seven years for a civil trial is reasonably simply means that the judge doesn't relate to the time and stress it causes for the rest of us. And here that's what's happening to our prime minister. For the Supreme Court of Israel earning a public salary to think that it's reasonable for a civil trial to last more than five years is an insult to the public that's paying his salary. The same applies to criminal trials lasting five years. What happens in a jury trial in like the United States, ordinary citizens are summoned to sit on the trial and decide the merits of the case. The trial represents a disruption in their lives not allowed to drag on in open-ended fashion. The two sides of the trial can ask for postponement and delays during the preliminary stages. But once the jury is formed, the trial goes on. That's what happens in the United States. And in Israel, it's endless. So after the trial, uh, the people involved are taken away from their daily lives. So the the uh, jury format would satisfy most of the complaints by placing the indictment in different stages in the hands of ordinary system. The, a jury system would reduce the amount of time the prime minister and any other political figure's life is disrupted by the state attorney's office, and and remove the verdict from a judge, uh, and 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 would benefit the ordinary citizen by reducing the amount of time on trial takes from their lives as well as their legal expenses. So right now the system in Israel is really bad. But, uh, I think that a change in the trial system here in Israel to a jury trial would be acceptable to both the coalition and the opposition because it makes more sense. Our prime minister is spending too much of his time in court. We need him for more important things like the Iranian threat. Something should be done to change that system. I'll be back after the break. One Minute of Torah. The first topic discussed in this week's double Torah portion of Matot Masse is the laws of personal vows. Although Torah considers one's word as binding, under some circumstances, one's vow can be annulled. If it has not been annulled, a person is obligated to fulfill his vow, and in the words of the Torah, he shall not violate his word. Hasidic thought shares an additional insight on that phrase. The Torah wants us to honor our word, not only in the sense of keeping our promise, but also in the sense of speaking honorable words. Speech is a gift given to us by God, and he doesn't want us to violate it. Keep it holy, keep it honorable, keep it clean, God is telling us. When you need to express something, even a negative feeling, find the most positive way and clean language with which to do it. Furthermore, let all your conversations be imbued with holy purpose, remembering that our mission is to be a light unto the nations and to fill the world with the awareness of God Almighty. We can do this by measuring our words, making sure each one is respectful, honorable, and purposeful. With your eye, Chairman of Torah, this is Chav Isaacovich. We're back with Jay Shapiro. I want to say a few things uh, about what's happening in Europe, particularly in France. It's not something that I generally talk about 
But I recall when I first came to Israel, uh, we had a very close relationship with France, and a number of uh, programs were being done in France by the Israeli government because the French were uh, uh, very sympathetic toward Israel. But just about the time that I came on Aliyah, the French uh, changed their attitude. I think de Gaulle was the president or prime minister at the time, and his uh, attitude turned more favorably toward the Arab countries, and it was the whole problem of Israel having bought something, something like 15 Mirage airplanes uh, and paid for them, and the uh, French government refused to sell them. That was all story unto itself, but uh, a lot of the uh, people that I worked with when I first came on Aliyah at the aircraft industry had people who had really learned their business while they were in France. They represented the Israeli government, and they're working together with the French to learn things and to do things about aircraft. So we had a very close relation with the French at that time. And uh, at that time, I had a few occasions to visit the France and uh, I was a little bit disturbed by the fact that there were areas, uh, particularly in Paris, where you can't, couldn't enter because they were rather dangerous because of uh, a lot of uh, Muslim immigrants who were there. So uh, I just want to touch upon that, although I generally talk, don't talk about foreign affairs, but I think it's important to know there are fundamental shifts occurring in France, and not only in France, but Europe also generally, because the influx of Muslim immigrants, they they wanted to have cheap labor, and therefore the European countries were uh, very willing to bring really millions of uh, immigrants from Muslim countries. So the question is, what has really happened to European society, societal values, the uh, and, uh, and of course significant changes have been taking place in, within France. And the reason I brought this up because there were riots in France, and they got all the headlines here in Israel also. Now, these riots have pretty much uh, uh, displayed the fact that there's a very big problem of integration and assimilation of the Muslim community in Europe, particularly in France. We have to acknowledge the fact that Europe, has undergone significant transformation since the arrival of millions of Muslim immigrants. Now, there are cultural clashes there, social tensions, and the question is, what are the values that shape European society for centuries? They were Christian values, Christian or Jewish values. Now, there is a, the, there is a, um, a large Muslim population in Europe now didn't exist there 50 years ago. Now, there are, among them, there are those who hold a, a extremist ideology and that have taken root within this community. Now, what happens is these ideologies that were imported have had a profound influence on European societies. And it, what happened is this well, could well jeopardize the liberal values that were once the hallmark of most European countries. Now, what's happened in uh, France is that many Muslim communities have not integrated into the country.
So there, there are cultural enclaves, there's separatism, there's social fragmentation. Now, the, this, this is a threat to the European societies. European countries, for particularly France, for example, have to prioritize the preservation of their cultural heritage, their values, the way of life, at the same time, they have to assure that religious freedom and diversity are not misused or exploited to undermine the cohesive fabric of the European nations. So what's happening is that there are many areas in Europe, particularly in France, where these people, these immigrants, are getting their own education, educational system, and they, this resists assimilation, and what's happening is is a creation of parallel societies with it within the European countries that pretty much challenge the norms and values of the host country, particularly France. As I understand it, France is not the same country it was up to 50 years ago. There are challenges posed by the influx of Muslim immigrants, and uh, France has to acknowledge the changes that have occurred. The, uh, the French must protect and preserve their own cultural integrity, and uh, there are, uh, the problem is that there are just Muslim communities there that are upholding their own traditions which are not the same as the European uh, traditions. The uh, the uh, there are riots taking place in France over the last couple of weeks. It gets big headlines here in Israel, and that's why I brought up the subject. Now, it's true. Because of French colonialism in Africa and the Middle East, that meant that tens of thousands of people living outside of France acquired French citizenship or entitled to immigrate to France. Now, this is true of many Jews, by the way, particularly from Algeria. But uh, many of them were Muslim, and they had no cultural or religious affinity to the French culture and history. Now, the children of these people who never integrated into the European countries are part of the masses that are now rioting and getting all the big headlines. And so, in line with European Union policy on immigration, France has adopted a policy of multiculturalism and opened its doors to thousands of foreign refugees who want to go to Europe because looking for a better life. They were primarily economic migrants, migrants from Africa, because they simply want to improve their lives. They came with no skills, no education, and the idea behind welcoming them was a humanitarian decision. They got shelter, medical treatment, education, and financial help. And also, these people were the people who were ready to work. A lot of Frenchmen and a lot of Europeans were not willing to do the dirty labor that's required, and therefore they, they, they more or less assisted these people and encouraged these people to come. So what's happened is, if you look at Europe today, uh, compared to what it looked like 50 years ago, we can pretty much say it's been a failure. The uh, people who are now rioting in France are the same economic migrants who were previously welcomed there. 
They live in areas that become centers of crime and illegal drug distribution, and they see the police as their enemy. So the riots that are taking place in France today are the result of a policy decision to allow immigration into the country with an entirely different cultural, political, and religious outlook on life. So it appears that the rioters have displayed in nothing but a hatred for French society. They've destroyed cars, they've destroyed property, and uh, they destroyed property worth hundreds of millions of euros. So they, one can pretty much say that these people who were brought into the country and raised their children over the last 50 years are pretty much bent on destroying the society that welcomed them. Now, inevitably, this will stop. The next French elections will be strongly influenced by the riots taking place there, particularly in Paris. So the problem is, and this is this is why I brought up the whole subject, is that it, when you have this kind of unrest in a country, that the political parties that win the election tend to be right-wing parties. So the likelihood of the next French government being right-wing is pretty much in, increased because of the riots that are, are taking place there. And if the a right-wing government uh, uh, takes place, uh, power in France, it will affect its relationship with Israel. So, although, you know, you look in the paper and you see, wow, there are riots uh, taking place in Paris, what does that have to do with Israel? The answer is that these riots will bring right-wing parties, some of which are anti-Semitic, to power in France, and that will affect the relationship between France and Israel. So the, the riots taking place now in France are something we have to keep our eye on because, you know, there, there's some people always see something happening anywhere around the world. They relate it somehow to, to the Jews. They see something happening and say, yeah, what's the Jewish problem here? And I honestly think uh, I'm, not a, uh, I'm not a political scientist, but I, I see what's happening in France. And I think what's happening in the rioting moving to power parties, uh, some of which have a tinge of anti-Semitism, and this cannot be good between the relationship of France and Israel. So that's something I just wanted to share with the listeners. Uh, again, I'm not a political scientist, but I truly believe is something that has to be watched. Now that I spoke about France and its relationship to Israel, I want to see a few words about Canada. Again, I'm not a political scientist, but I'm watching what's happening and I have some thoughts that I want to share with the uh, the listeners. There are uh, 40 million people living in Canada, of whom uh, 400,000 are Jews. It's the fourth largest Jewish community in the world. Now, the in 2022 alone, almost 404,000 immigrants from all over the world were admitted to Canada. Uh, and in other words, these immigrants in the last year is more than the number of Jews living in the country in, uh, at the moment. Now, it's interesting, because back in the time when Hitler rose to power in Europe, 
because uh, of anti-Semitism, only 5,000 Jews were admitted to Canada from 1933 until 1945, and only 500 were admitted from 1939 to 1945. Admitting Jewish refugees to Canada was not popular politically at the time, there, at that time, the Jewish community in Canada was about 150,000 people, and they tried to get more Jews accepted, but it didn't work. The, uh, there were those who claimed that the, the Canadian response to what was happening in Europe vis-a-vis the Jews was arguably the worst of all possible refugee-receiving states. But there were very few sanctuaries available to Jews while it was rising to power. The the very few Jewish refugees were admitted to Canada during the immediate post-war period also. That's like from 1945 to 1948. A one Jewish leader at that time declared it was easier for Nazi war criminals to get into Canada than Jews. The... uh, Back in 1941, Jewish leaders had prevailed on the Canadian government to admit 1,000 Jewish orphans from Vichy, France. But all the costs at the time were taken care of by the Jewish community. But what happened was that Vichy was occupied by German forces, but, uh, and these, the, uh, so the, the kids never got there. Now, the, uh, the sad truth is that the attitude toward Jewish immigration to countries such as Canada were not changed by the war. Despite conferences about Jewish refugees took place at Evian in 1937 and Bermuda in 1943, despite knowing about the Nazi plan to exterminate the Jews, they, they, they didn't want Jews in many of these countries. Just the uh, and then afterwards, we, well, the question was, who wanted the survivors? Well, they were placed, the these survivors after the war had no homes to go back to. Jews who were uh, came from Poland and from uh, uh, Belarus and places like that had no homes to go back to, and they weren't welcome too much in Canada or other Western countries, including the United States. And uh, British policy barred them from entering Palestine, which was really their preferred uh, destination. So, uh, so late 1947 and into 1948, the doors opened a bit, and the reason was, and I just noted, uh, found this out, the Canadian the Canadian Prime Minister was a man named William Lyon Mackenzie King. And uh, he was Prime Minister of Canada from 1935 to 1948. And he kept a diary, daily diary, for over 50 years. And the bulk of which has been transcribed and digitized and made available online by the Library and Archives Canada. Many of his comments about Jews displayed the casual anti-Semitism of the times. It wasn't rabid anti-Semitism. It's best what you could call uh, casual anti-Semitism. In March 1945, Mackenzie King, the Prime Minister of Canada, 
I had a lengthy interview with Dr. Nochum Goldman, who is Chaim Weizmann's representative. Chaim Weizmann eventually became the first president of Israel, and he was immensely relieved by his strong advocacy of having the Jews return to Palestine instead of coming to places like Canada. He wrote in his diary, uh, Mackenzie King wrote that the plight of these people is unbelievable. He sympathized with them, but they weren't going to allow more than they wanted to, to come to uh, to Canada. In 1947, the future of Palestine was placed in the hands of the United Nations, and uh, a committee on Palestine uh, made up of representatives from 11 countries, included Canada, and they conducted a, a, an inquiry, and they recommended Palestine, Palestine be portioned to Jewish and Arab states. That's where what about the vote in November 1947. Uh, by the way, just for the record, when they voted to establish a, a, a Palestinian state for the Arabs and for the Jews, the vote was 33 to 13, with 10 abstentions. Uh, so it was really close. Uh, the uh, Canada voted for the petition. So, uh, so after the state of Israel was astounded, the pressure on these refugees to go to other countries uh, was uh, reduced. And now they had a place to go. Now, obviously, if they would have had a place to go in 1939, millions more Jews would be alive today. But the the establishment of the state of Israel in 1947 essentially uh, uh, relieved pressure on other countries to take in Jews. So uh, it's interesting. The uh, anti-Semitism that constrained many countries like uh, like uh, Canada is pretty much gone. The uh, unfortunately recent hate crime statistics suggest that uh, there is anti-Semitism rising in the United States and in Canada. So, what I tried to do in this uh, segment of my program, I uh, essentially uh, wanted to bring to the listeners the fact that the situation, the political situation in France is changing. It could bring a right-wing, strongly right-wing government to power in France. And at the same time, there is a rising anti-Semitism both in Canada and in the United States. Uh, these, these are things that are not related. But uh, uh, I gather information during the course of the week, and I want to share uh, the information with the listeners so you keep an eye on these things. I want the listeners to do what I do. I, I read the papers, I, uh, I watch television, I listen, and I try to find what's happening to, not only to Jewish uh, communities in other countries, to find out what's happening politically in other countries. Because what happens politically will affect the Jewish community. So... Uh, the problem in the United States and Canada is, is one of anti-Semitism, which is something which went undercover after the Second World War. Now it's blossoming again, unfortunately. And what's happening in France is that the uh, the changes are because of the uh, activities of the Muslim immigration. Uh, there might be a right-wing government 
coming up in France, uh, some of which has tinges, at least, of anti-Semitism. So it's something we have to keep our eye on. So I just want to share my thoughts with the listeners. I'll be back after the break. Be smart. Listen to Israel News Talk Radio in the background while you work and get the latest news and commentary from Israel. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. Hi, you're back with Jay Shapiro. I want to say a few words about uh, what's happening now on the uh, Jewish calendar this time of year. We are now in the three-week period that began on the 17th day of the Jewish month of Tammuz, and it will end on the ninth day of the Jewish month of Av. These are the days, the three weeks in this period is considered the saddest time in the Jewish calendar because a number of bad things happen on the 17th day of the month of Tammuz, but primarily it commemorates the date on which the walls of the city of Jerusalem were breached during the Second Temple period. And the ninth day of Av memorializes the destruction of both the first and second temples. The ninth day of Av also commemorates or memorializes some uh, other uh, catastrophes in Jewish history. For example, when the spies were sent by Moses and they came back and said that they couldn't conquer the land and the Jews were punished to remain another 40 years in the desert, this is reported to happen on the ninth day of the month of Av. The Jewish tradition uh, creates a yearly mourning period primarily for Jerusalem, which was symbolized primarily by the temples, the first and the second temple. Now, the, the Jewish traditions were established to dictate behaviors that forced Jews not only to remember but actually to feel the destruction of the temple. Traditions are in place today so that our collective memory never forgets what happened many years ago. Both the 17th of Thomas and the 9th of Av are fast days. The 17th of Thomas is a fast from morning to sunset. The ninth of Av is an entire day from the evening at sunset to the following night at sunset. And it's very difficult. It falls out in the summer, very difficult time uh, to fast. The month of Tevet falls during the winter time. uh, And on the tenth day of Tevet, Jews fast once again because in that day, the Babylonians besieged the city of Jerusalem. The first, the Jewish month of Tishrei, which is when the uh, the New Year is, is the fall time of the year. And the third day of Tishrei, the day after Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, we also have a fast from morning to night. 
And all these things are connected to Jerusalem. The day after Rosh Hashanah, the day after the New Year, is called Tzom Gedayim, the fast of Gedayim. What happened was, was Gedayim was the Babylonian appointed king of Jerusalem after the Babylonians had conquered the city, and he was assassinated. And his assassination was a loss to the Jews of Jerusalem, to their community, and to their communal safety. His assassination marked the end of Jewish life in uh, the first temple period. So, we he was good to the Jews, and we today the name Gedaliah uh, is also a Jewish name, although Gedaliah was appointed by the king of Babylonia. It's, it's not quite sure from history whether Gedaliah was Jewish or not. So, now, when the Jewish calendar dictates that we mourn Jerusalem, Jerusalem is primary on the Jewish calendar. It also dictates that we celebrate Jerusalem. Three times a year on the pilgrim holidays, all of the Jews traveled to Jerusalem to deliver their sacrifice at the temple. These are the three shlosha regalim, three holidays, Sukkot, in the fall, Passover in the spring, and Shavuot, which closes out the spring and brings the summer season. Incidentally, these holidays are called regalim, and this word regalim is based on the word regal, which means a foot. These are the times of the year when Jews were required to travel to Jerusalem. Now, now, almost every Jewish holiday has some kind of basis in Jerusalem. The only exception, or actually there's two exceptions. One is Purim, which took place in the Babylonian or Persian kingdom, and uh, Hanukkah, which is uh, the Festival of Lights, commemorates the rededication of the Temple in Jerusalem, and the Hanukkah story took place in Palestine. But the uh, Purim took place in the Diaspora. It took place in uh, either Babylonia or Persia. I think it was in Persia, actually. But the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah, the Fast of Yom Kippur, which is the holiest day in the entire Jewish calendar, uh, are certainly Jerusalem-centric because their liturgy speaks of the Temple of Jerusalem. By the way, there are people who think that Yom Kippur, I just said that Yom Kippur is the holiest day in the Jewish calendar. It's not true. I correct myself. The holiest day in the Jewish calendar is the Sabbath. And the reason we know this is because the number of people called up to the reading of the Torah. Every Monday and Thursday, people are called up to the reading of the Torah, three people, Monday and Thursday. On the Shabbat, on Yom Kippur, that is, six people are called up to the reading of the Torah, and on the holidays, five people are calling to the reading of the Torah. The only time that seven people are called to the reading of the Torah is on Shabbat every week. 
which indicates that Shabbat is the holiest day on the Jewish calendar. Now, back in 1885, there was a movement, the Reform Movement decided to essentially uh, take Jerusalem away from Judaism. At a conference in Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh Conference in 1885, they, the Reformed Judaism, which was fairly new at the time, they set up what was called the Pittsburgh Platform of Reformed Judaism. And Article 5 of the Pittsburgh Platform is critical. It removed the centrality of Israel and Jerusalem for Jewish life. Article 5 of the Pittsburgh Platform said, We recognize in the modern era of universal culture of heart and intellect the approaching of the realization of Israel's greatest messianic hope for the establishment of the kingdom of truth, justice, and peace among all men. We consider ourselves no longer a nation, but a religious community, and therefore we expect neither a return to Palestine nor a sacrificial sacrifice under the sons of Aaron, nor a restoration of any of the laws concerning the Jewish state. That was the Pittsburgh Platform in, 19, in 1885 of the Reform Movement. Since then, the Reform Movement has changed quite a bit and has now become Zionistic. So the, uh, the, eventually, the Reform Movement joined the uh, Zionist movement, and one of the heads of the Reform Movement uh, lived in the apartment house where I live now, and were very friendly with him. The Reform Movement started off non-Zionist, ended up very Zionist. But Jerusalem is not only central to Judaism, it's central for all of Israel. There is, by the way, two Talmuds, two Jewish laws. One was written in Babylonia, it's called the Babylonian Talmud. The other is called Jerusalem Talmud. The Jerusalem Talmud was not really composed in Jerusalem. It was composed in the Galilee. The Babylonian Talmud was actually composed in Babylonia, which today is Iraq. The, uh, the reason the Jerusalem Talmud, which was not composed in Jerusalem, but in the Galilee, it received the name Jerusalem Talmud because Jerusalem is a metaphor for all of Israel. So Jerusalem is the foundation stone for all of Jerusalem. It is where Judaism developed as a culture, as a people, as a society, as a nation, and as a religion. And the Jewish calendar recognizes. So it's interesting. On, at the conclusion, the conclusion of every Passover Seder, but also at the conclusion of Yom Kippur, right after proclaiming the greatness of God, and right before blowing the shofar, Jews all across the world, Lishana Haba Yerushalayim, next year in Jerusalem.
So Jerusalem is center to Jewish thinking. And I have been privileged to live in Jerusalem. I live about a mile away from the remnants of the old temple. And the old city is really a privilege after all these years to live in the city of Jerusalem. So even though we were now commemorating the three weeks between the 17th day of Tammuz and the ninth day of Av, which are the saddest dates in Jewish history, we thank God that we live in the restored city of Jerusalem. And since this program is being broadcast during these three weeks, I wanted to make mention of it. Now, I want to go on to a different topic, something that appeared quite a bit in the newspapers in the last couple of weeks, and I want to make some reference to it. Between uh, During the early uh, parts of this month, July, first several days of July, Israeli troops uncovered, uh, they invaded the city of Jenin, and they uncovered bomb-making labs and ammunition stockpiles hidden within mosques and hospitals. Despite the complexity of urban compact in close quarters, the Israeli army is extremely professional and it knows how to act with precision. And at this uh, invasion of these cities, if you want to call it an invasion, led to the death of 12 armed terrorists and the arrest of hundreds of others, all without causing any harm whatsoever to civilians. Keep in mind, over the last couple of years, the northern region of Judea and Samaria, where the city of Jenin is located, has evolved into a hub for terrorism, and an infrastructure on a massive scale for terrorism. From this area, particularly Jenin, daily attacks have been launched against Israeli men, women, and children, and it's caused numerous injuries and fatalities. If you look at the map, you'll see that the city of Jenin almost touches the... um, the Israel, the, the highway connecting the uh, coastal region with the center of Israel. So, now, the operation earlier in July was an example of Israel's commitment protecting the innocent and avoiding collateral damage, even amidst the fight to safeguard our own population. The um, an article appeared in the uh, Jewish Chronicle in London, written by Richard Kent, is a former British Army commander, and uh, he headed the international terrorism team in the United Kingdom. And he wrote in the Jewish Chronicle, the fact that the IDF, the Israeli Army, killed no civilians in Jenin is absolutely a marvel. In most operations in urban areas, even those conducted by Western armies, more civilians than fighters are killed, unquote. That did not happen in Jenin. Only terrorists were killed. 
On the other hand, the Palestinian terrorists have displayed a complete disregard for human life. The, uh, so there's a big difference, and we have to keep emphasizing that between Israel and the terrorists. We have to emphasize emphasize it. The fundamental difference, a very fundamental difference between Israel and the Palestinian terrorists is that the Israelis prioritize the protection of civilians, Arab civilians, employing strategies and tactics to minimize harm to innocent Palestinian lives. The terrorists, on the other hand, cynically exploit their own people using women and children as human shields and deliberately target Israeli civilians. Now, truth of the matter is, the international community has been very even-handed, and they condemn these Israels and the terrorists the same way. They, they, for example, the fact that uh, the um, terrorists use places of, uh, of Muslim worship for uh, illicit warfare is never mentioned. But regrettably, mainstream global media has failed to convey the realities on the ground. They neglect to mention the grave danger posed to Jews and to Palestinians emanating from the areas supposedly controlled by the Palestinian Authority, but the Palestinian Authority has pretty much lost control of the areas ceded to them in the Oslo Agreements 30 years ago. The, our army consistently demonstrates its commitment to minimizing civilian casualties, while Palestinian terrorists prioritize destruction, and they're not interested in building any society. After they made the agreements in Oslo 30 years ago, they were given the opportunity to build a Palestinian society and they did not do so. The fundamental truth is that Israel cherishes life while terrorists embrace death. And we have to repeat that over and over again. The Golden Meir many years ago made a comment that the, uh, the day with peace will come when the Palestinians cherish the lives of their own children over the desire to kill our children. And that's a huge difference. The international leaders and a lot of journalists tend to create artificial symmetry between what our army does and what the Palestinian terrorists do. So there's no justification for drawing any moral parallels between our army, the Israel Defense Force, and the terrorists. Any such comparison is flawed and has to be objected, rejected outright. Our army is a moral army. The terrorists are completely the opposite. 
and when foreign media have a tendency to compare them, it is simply wrong. We are moral. They are not. These are the facts on the ground. And that has to be repeated over and over again to react as a reaction against the headlines you see all the time around the world, which essentially compares the Israeli army and the terrorists. It's wrong. We are moral. They are immoral. And we have to repeat that over and over again. So it should not be forgotten. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. Want real answers to the big questions of life? Who am I? Why am I here? How can I find lasting happiness? If God is good, why is the world so bad? Don't miss Soul Talk with Rabbi David Aaron. Revealing, inspiring, empowering. Thursdays on Israel News Talk Radio. Uh, In this last section of the program... I want to touch on a number of items not related to each other, but they should. I hope that they'll be of interest to the listeners. First of all, I remember when I went to school years ago and we were taught about the First World War, we were told over and over again that President Wilson of the United States said that the world, uh, First World War was a war to end all wars. He said that in uh, sometime between 1916 and uh, 1919. Not important. Now, we know what's happened uh, since that time, almost 100 years ago. And uh, we know that it's been a world full of wars. So if that war back in uh, the early part of the 20th century was a war to end all wars, It's interesting to know what's happening now. There is a NATO summit taking place this week in the city of Vilnius in Lithuania. And the president of the United States went there. Now, by the way, I've been to Vilnius, a very interesting city. And it had another, Vilnius is a very, at an old Jewish community, very famous Jewish community, including a couple hundred years ago, the Vilna Gaon uh, came from there. At any rate, um, it's interesting. Uh, here we are, you know, a uh, hundred years after the First World War, the war to end old wars. I want to read a few things that are being said about this NATO summit. The uh, This summit has a number of long-lasting implications. For, for instance, Finland is interested in David's sling, the air defense system jointly developed by Israel and the United States. Israel's defense ministry recently announced that the system completed a new series of tests. At the same time, the question of NATO's relationship with Ukraine will rise, as well as the discussion about the U.S. sending cluster munitions to the Ukraine. That's 3,000 government representatives from 50 countries are going to participate in the summit. <clears throat> Another group of 2,000 media and non-government organizations representatives are expected to be in Vilnius. 
the Vilnius is the city of about a half a million residents. So this will be the biggest meeting that Lithuania has ever hosted. As a matter of fact, the air traffic will be suspended on the days that the meeting take place. Now, NATO's goal, according to this report that I'm reading, is to get countries to increase their military spending since the war in Ukraine forced European states' military hands, compelling them to bring their militaries to a standard capable of fighting conventional wars. This means that big business for defense companies, including those based in Israel. For example, Israel was a big player at the recent Paris Air Show and is selling the Arrow Air Defense System jointly developed with the U.S. to Germany. West European countries are transferring older military equipment to Ukraine and upgrading rapidly as a result. Now, East European countries are doing this as well, but there are supply chain issues. Ukraine is using more munitions than the West can supply. Russia's goal is to wear Ukraine down by attrition, to fortify its positions in Ukraine, and to do what Germany did to France back in 1917, to bleed Ukraine white. Ukraine's current offensive is still going strong, and many wonder whether it will sustain itself and make significant gains. Turkey wants more um, F-16s from the United States, and Congress is angry that Turkey threatened its allies like Greece and uses F-16s to target U.S.-backed anti-ISIS fighters in Syria. So the, so the U.S. is loath to give Turkey more weapons. So uh, the uh, I, I, there's more in this article, but the point I wanted to make was we are now 100 years after the war to end all wars. And there's fighting going on all over the place, particularly Ukraine and Russia. But it turns out the expression to war, to end all wars, was a terrible, terrible mistake. And interestingly enough, about 100 years ago, the state of Israel did not exist, as a matter of fact. And uh, what's happening now is Israel is, uh, the defense companies in Israel are, are going to have big business based on this summit 100 years after the war to end all wars. So that's just a comment. Uh, I couldn't help bringing it up because uh, I remember myself as a kid after the Second World War, we thought there wouldn't be any more wars. That turned out to be a terrible mistake. At any rate, I want to go on to a different subject, totally unrelated to what I previously said. The, uh, the uh, Back in uh, 1938, Munich's main synagogue in Germany was destroyed by the Nazis. Now, there is a river running in Munich called the Isar River, and recently... Construction workers made a sensational discovery. Stone tablets carved with the Ten Commandments 
Well, the city's former main synagogue, which was torn down in the summer of 1938 on Adolf Hitler's Hitler's orders, were just found. The find in the river of the Ten Commandments from the synagogue was announced almost exactly 85 years after the synagogue building was destroyed. Workers discovered the stone tablets along with 150 tons of rubble from the synagogue. Uh, What happened was these workers were extending the river at an artificial lake, and they came upon the remnants of of this large synagogue in Munich destroyed by the Nazis in 1938. After the synagogue was was, uh, destroyed on Hitler's orders, a uh, a demolition firm stored the rubble to site in the west of the city, and and a department store now stands on the plot once occupied by the synagogue. Now, it turned out that the the, the demolition firm, uh, which which, um, leveled uh, on Hitler's orders, that firm used the rubble from the synagogue to shore up a dam in 1956. About 150 tons of rubble and debris from the synagogue were dumped into the river as part of this project. So the uh, the city department contacted state landmarks officials who said uh, it's obvious that the, the broken stones are part of the great synagogue. There are tablet of laws on it. So uh, the city's arranging to transport the stones to a storage area and I'll keep looking for segments of the synagogue. The Ten Commandments alone weigh more than half a ton. So it's interesting. The, uh, this, the museum in Munich has many historical photos of the synagogue, and they'll help them identify these architectural fragments when they find them uh, uh, in the river. And it's important for two reasons. One hand, the main synagogue was one of the biggest in Germany. The other hand, it was a document of the positive Jewish life in Germany up until 1933. So in a sense, these broken stones were a monument to the Holocaust. The Great Synagogue in Munich was the first synagogue that the Nazis destroyed in Germany. On July 8th, 1938, Jewish community members, given a few hours' notice, and volunteers spent that night removing the Torah scrolls and the ritual objects. And this was five months before the Nazis unleashed Kristallnacht, a state-sponsored violence against Jewish people with synagogues and homes all across Germany and and, uh, and Austria. So, the idea of a fragment being uh, from the synagogue is really it's it's nice. The uh, so uh, the uh, the mayor of Munich today said he was very moved by the discovery. The city plans to secure the objects and return them to the Jewish community. 
the uh, so it also the, um, the there is another big synagogue in Munich called the Reichenbachstrasse Synagogue, and it was built in 1931, two years before Hitler came to power, and it was severely vandalized during Kristallnacht in 1938, and it was restored for use by Holocaust survivors in 1947. Meantime, there aren't that many people using the synagogue, so uh, the, uh, the there's been a new synagogue opened in Munich in 2006. So the old synagogues have fallen into disrepair. But it's interesting that the parts of Munich's main synagogue destroyed by the Nazis in 1938 was found in the city's river. It's being cleaned up, and they're going to put these things on display. So uh, I, I pass along to the listeners uh, who can decide yourselves what you think of that. But it's interesting, my mind. Now, another topic not related to what I've said so far in this segment of the program, but I think one that the... Uh, Listeners should find of interest. The New Hampshire governor, Sununu, issued an executive order that prohibits the state of New Hampshire from engaging in the investment or contracting with companies and commercial entities involved in boycotting Israel. And uh, the announcement was made by, uh, uh, by, by the governor of New Hampshire, and uh, of course, it was it was praised by everybody. Now, these regulations safeguard local businesses engaged in commercial activity with Israel, ensuring that taxpayer funds are not utilized to promote the discrimination practice based on national origin. Anti-BDS certifications incorporated into state contracts aligned with existing non-discrimination provisions that protect individuals based on gender, race, religion, national origin, and veteran status. So the, uh, the, the New Hampshire, as I said, became the 37th U.S. state to adopt an anti-BDS law, and the, uh, the state of Israel, of course, is appreciative by becoming the 37th state to reaffirm opposition to BDS, New Hampshire is helping not just to strengthen relations between Israel and the U.S., it's also creating an economic uh, iron dome, if you will, that will ensure our shared progress and prosperity while fortifying the moral issues. And um, the support of New Hampshire is the perfect response to these, all these anti-Semites. So, truth of the matter is, we have to boycott the boycotters and delegitimize the delegitimizers. So, and this has been proven, by the way, in several countries that wanted to boycott Israel, including Ben and Jerry's, which makes great ice cream. At any rate, that 37 U.S. states have adopted an anti-BDS law, and that's good. And another item which is under the, under the headlines, but it deserves some attention, 
According to the European Union, which influences policy making in an international community, Israel's occupation of the West Bank, which are areas that the Israeli army conquered in 1967, according to the U- European Union, this is a violation of international law, the Hague and Fort Geneva Convention, and is illegal. Therefore, Israel must withdraw to the 1949 armistice lines. Now, this is a powerful and effective emotional and psychological weapon against Israel. Few understand that for Palestinians, the occupation includes all of Israel from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. So the European Union position is pretty baseless. The League of Nations recognized the right of Jewish people to homeland in the area. This is incorporated in the UN's Charter, Article 8, and occupation is something as occurring between states. Uh, And according to them, only Israel qualifies. The the International Committee of the Red Cross, by the way, declared that Israel was guilty of illegally occupying Palestinian territory. And since uh, the International Committee of the Red Cross has special observer status at the UN, uh, its decisions are considered authoritative. In other words, these people don't... Uh, it's interesting. Israel withdrew from these areas, uh, A and B in Judea and Samaria, stipulated in the Oslo Accords, and also assisted the Palestinian Authority to develop its own institutional structure. But now... They're denying Israel's legal and historical claims to the Area C, where the settlements are located. So the, uh, the, there's no more argument about territorial concessions because there's no right to make the concessions too. There's, now, some people argue that Israel shouldn't rule over others as a moral issue. That the occupation is not only about territory, but it's depriving the Palestinian people of a state and self-determination, according to these people. Now, shifting to a humanitarian argument is persuasive because it is a value. As a moral issue, they claim that Israel has no right to control another people and occupy their land. So Israel is being vilified. The Jews are being vilified as persecutors of Palestinians who are the victims. So... uh, what they're doing is amplifying the question of the legality of settlements to include a moral issue. In other words, the alleged violation of human rights of the Palestinians by Israel. So, the, uh, the, 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 the so, for example, they charge that Israel restricts where Palestinian Arabs can live, interferes with their daily lives, invades their towns and villages to apprehend terrorists and violates their civil and human rights and constitutes occupation. The ending the occupation unilaterally, therefore, without a solid peace agreement is impossible because Palestinian territories are a constant threat. Radical Islamists in countries such as Iran are involved in promoting terrorism and a unilateral Israeli withdrawal from Area C and the creation of a terrorist-led Palestinian state is an existential danger to the state of Israel. So 
using legal and humanitarian arguments to justify Palestinian demands ignores Israel's legitimate claims to Judea and Samaria and its its uh, security needs. So in a sense, Israel is trapped. As long as it refuses to grant Palestinians a state and it holds on to Area C and maintains anti-terrorism activities, it will be accused of occupation and persecution of Palestinians. So therefore, re- uh, resistance to the occupation is used to justify terrorism. So enemy occupation sets immediate and direct distinction between good and evil. So this is a psychological determinism, so so forces an either-or decision. Once the premise that occupation is evil is accepted, the conclusion is inevitable that Israel is evil. So that's why this this talking is so powerful because it doesn't require critical thinking in a sense it prevents it as long we know as long as terrorism exists there'll be an occupation there'll be checkpoints there'll be intervention by the Israeli army and the police ending the occupation begins with ending incitement hatred of the Jews and terrorism the slogan, End the Occupation, is not a call to protect Palestinian rights. It's essentially a call to end Israel's existence. And it's not a plea for humanity, but the, the idea is to commit mayhem and genocide against the Jewish people. So that's, when you hear people talk about ending the occupation, that's what it really means. End the occupation means to put the state of Israel into danger. Uh, So I just wanted to share those thoughts for listeners. Till next time, take care of yourselves. Shay Shapiro, signing off.